Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. All right. Hello and welcome. This is Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast and I'm your host, Emily. Today we are welcoming welcoming three lovely writers, Ron Nyren, Judy Juanita, and Karen Kevorkian um, to read from their books uh, and to celebrate the launch of Ryan's new or of Ron's new book, The Book of Lost Light. They'll be in conversation with each other, but before I introduce them, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books uh, offers curbside pickup online ordering on our website, skylightbooks.com. Um, and yeah, so today we'll first be hearing from Judy Juanita. Judy is the author of The Virgin Soul, a novel based on her youth and experience as a member of the Black Panther Party. Buzzfeed called Virgin Soul one of 16 books to read if you love San Francisco. Her essay collection, De Facto Feminism, Essays Straight Out of Oakland, explores the gap between Black and female empowerment. It was a distinguished finalist in Ohio State University's Nonfiction Collection Prize 2016. Her short stories appeared in Oakland Noir, Crab Orchid Review, The Female Complaint, Imagination in Place, an anthology, Tart 6 and Tart 7. And then we'll be hearing from Karen Kevorkian, who is the author of three poetry collections, Quivira 3, uh, sorry, Quivira, Lizard Dream, and White Stucco Black Wing. Her work appears in the Antioch Review, Michigan Quarterly Review, Denver Quarterly, Colorado Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, Virginia Quarterly Review, Massachusetts Review, and elsewhere. She is a lecturer at the University of California, Los Angeles. And then lastly, but certainly not least, we'll be hearing from Ron Nyrens and his new novel, The Book of Lost Light, uh, which won the 2019 Black Lawrence Press Big Moose Prize and we published in November of 2020. It's the story of Joseph Kylander, his obsessive photographer father, and the impulsive young cousin helping to raise him as they take refuge with a group of artists in the Berkeley Hills after the 1906 earthquake. Ron's fiction has appeared in the Paris Review, the Missouri Review, the North American Review, Glimmer Train Stories, Mississippi River, 14 Hills, Able Muse, uh, Dollhouse Review, 100 Word Story, and elsewhere. Thank you guys so much for joining and uh, we'll start things off here with Judy. Hi, hi there. Um, so first, of course, thanks uh, for having me and really a big uh, whoopee to uh, Ron. I'm um, thrilled by his publication, uh, by his novel and hope just only, you know, many, many good things ahead for him. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna, 
read something from um, my latest book. It's, uh, I don't know, it's called Manhattan, My Ass, You're in Oakland. And it's a book of poems. So this is a letter poem. It's called To Mrs. Lindella Gooseby, a letter poem. To Mrs. Lindella Gooseby, 18th and Fond du Lac, Muskogee, Oklahoma. From Mrs. Florence Stapleton, Columbus, Georgia, on the date of the 4th of June in the year of our Lord, 1912. Dear Lindella June, please give Ma Gooseby my kindest regard. She is not, as you say, adding salt to the wound. This blow has hit you and her equally hard, but I hear your heart bleeding like a lost sheep across the windy plains. As to this so-called Rev Cleophas, Ma Gooseby did right, accusing you of taking an improper liking to him. Trust her in this matter. Circuit preachers can preach the gospel good as any man in a pulpit, but Roman is the habit a woman's heart and the prairie near bout equal to them. The very fact of him saying to Ma Gooseby, what he never say to you, she a little piece of leather, but she well put together. Show he have less on his mind and more round his holster than is good for him or y'all. He sound like a dip over here and dip over there type, if in a read, Ma Gooseby right. You still young, even with death, having sat down inside your heart. Trust Ma Gooseby as I do. For these two God honest reasons, she is blood to your child. She been through and through the storms of life. She can also iron up a petticoat, stiff as you please. And that's an accomplishment, Lindella darling. Men be like found money. If you find a shiny dollar on the street, spend it, don't depend on it. And don't be expecting to find it again. Sometime colored women happen up on men's like found money. And you know what Papa John used to say? White folks do business, colored folks make arrangements. Sometime, what else can we do? Anybody you decide to get a hold of Lindala, please remember, here for the day, gone for tomorrow. We trying hard as bees in a bonnet to keep your heart from breaking again. A body can only take so much. Our preacher said, death is a natural necessity. It must come to pass. Must means must. Keep the good Lord in your heart. Keep start a few goes. I am planning a late summer visit. Love, Mama. P.S. Preacher men is the hardest men's of all to live with. Has to keep his natural devil cooped up inside him. Let it out only as in front of his wife and children. Even men with vices easier than a man of God. So um, i just like to read another one. Um, that's that was in a dialect and this one's not this is just in a regular speaking voice and it's called of course i'm african-american when i slit the veins 
on my wrist in the dark of night, strange letters come out twisting and shouting like the Isley brothers caught red-handed in the dictionary. When I sleep, I see perfect musicals where somebody gets it right. Black people illuminated, not miscast. Witty, not ridiculous. Hip, not foolish. Fearless, not long-suffering. Kind, not compliant. Nighttime lets me know why those saints go marching in. Uh, I'll read two poems from Kivira. And uh, the first one, explicit comments about the West Coast, non-metaphorical. Santa Monica's and San Gabrielino's backdrop the city she once called her Grand Kivira, where men strap on leaf blowers, yank cords hard, wave wands left and right in priestly venison. Fantasies of Spanish stucco and red tile nod to European slaughter over transubstantive mysteries, shifting cutlery of green palms. Hillside pump jacks that bow and rebow in dinosaur feasting, where someone waving arms at another means I am done. A laddered sidewalk cartography of a new Mapamundi. A settle in rat tats of crows whose feathers are not lustrous or secretive, but inarticulate as the black of old coffee. Beneath streets gridded logic, a river's liquid cursive, the green silk across around returning. Red neon hand of a psychic life coach, pendulum swing of a window blind, cord lapping in circles now. Uh, so that's set in LA. Uh, this is one of those poems uh, that originate from a long car drive. Um, I would have to think of others' memories of my own. Pale green Palo Verdes, feather Mojave side roads to Oatman. 130 miles to Needles, land sales, yucca proving grounds. Gray box car teeth strung across the despoblado. For we had not found the kingdom. The foothills dropped from pinched fingertips, the mottled sky a blue and white cow blasting through broken window panes. The million year old basalt lava spill, three bladed windmills scything all the flowing, chamisa's dirty smoke, the white spark that lasts one hour after waking. I call you now, everything is rising. On concrete blocks, rusted cars and double wides, ceremonially positioned. They drew a line to keep them from crossing over, gave us headpieces and dressed skins, not gold and precious stones, nor brocades promised from pulpits, 
we gave them pearl beads cascabeles never seen before. Heavy artillery and a good place to batter down pueblos. Human shielding. Looped aluminum Christmas tinsel. Old fire-filled cottonwoods like hot air balloons at dusk rising. With my ribbon tongue, I call you. And what of it? There is no saving. 1,000 horses, 500 cattle, 5,000 sheep, 1,500 persons, the plains leaving no more trace when we got through than if no one had passed over. Piled up dung and bones so the rear guard could follow. Short grass, after trampling, stands up clean and straight again. Styrofoam chest gouged with fingernail half moons. Uranus sunsets. Breath, isn't it tired yet? All that in and outness. So. Thank you. Thank you both, that was beautiful. I'm going to read a passage from the Book of Lost Light that takes place not long after the 1906 earthquake. The narrator is Joseph, and he and his older cousin, Karelia, uh, and his father are camped out in the Berkeley Hills with a group of artists. That Sunday, the first Sunday in May, Karelia declared that she was taking her camera on an expedition into Wildcat Canyon to photograph in nature. Photographing only refugees left her sad and worried for them, even though so many of them were optimistic. When Nicholas saw her pick up the camera and tripod, he said, what you need is a donkey, and knocked his fist against his sternum. I am that donkey. Joseph will help me carry, she said. Then let me accompany you anyway, he said, and I'll be entirely useless. In the end, she let Nicholas hold the tripod. I had a sack of sandwiches, and Sebastian, who insisted on coming with us too, carried his sketching pad. The air, warm and a little breezy, rippled through the long, swishy grass that covered the hillside as the three of us made our way to the rim of Wildcat Canyon. From there, we could see the undeveloped land stretching to the north, where a few tents and makeshift shelters dotted the grass. There, in the tin can camp, as it was called, lived refugees who did not have friends or family and who had been kicked out of the large organized camps for one reason or another or who did not want to follow the rules. The residents of Berkeley said they were lawless men who kept aloof from each other and were half crazed with hunger. We followed Karelia down a thin winding path where animals or people had worn through the grass toward the loose row of alders that grew along the creek at the canyon's bottom. While we walked, Nicholas got out of Karelia the story of her arrival at my father's doorstep, which made him laugh. When he was a boy, Nicholas told us, his father inherited a fortune. He bought fine clothes and a house in Pacific Heights, and the family summered in Europe. At one party, his father planted torches in the backyard and set loose peacocks, one of whom caught fire and flew at the mare, singeing his jacket. When Nicholas said he wanted to study acting, his father sent him to college in New York. But after a year, his father lost all his money in a Ukiah silver mine that had come to nothing. When Nicholas returned from school for the summer, 
His father had disappeared and his mother and sister were living in a cousin's basement. I couldn't stand it, our fallen fortunes, Nicholas said. So in the autumn, I went back to New York and worked here and there and paid my own way through school. I should have stayed to look after my mother. She wasn't well and their circumstances were pinched. She died a few months before I was to complete my degree. I came back and my sister wouldn't speak to me. I've never forgiven myself. I'm sure you sent money back, Karelia said. Some, not enough. Now you know the worst thing I've ever done. He said this lightly, but his face was grave. You're lucky in your father, Joseph. He won't abandon you and he has a brilliance about him. If we opened the top of his head, I believe we'd see a scale model of the universe composed of crystal and set in motion by tiny gears. I'd like to talk more with him about photographing the soul. Painting can show us the soul, said Sebastian, because the artist interprets every detail through the medium of his own soul. Musicians and actors do so as well. But with photography, the machine records everything in front of it. The hand of the artist is nowhere to be found. That's not true, Karelia said. The photographer seeks images or figures or landscapes that have some dialogue with the drama of her inner life. And if she is inspired and skilled, she can bring out something that has to do with soul. In the dark room, she can brighten or darken, superimpose images from one photograph to another, even paint or etch the image to make it harmonize with her vision. I'd like to watch you in the dark room, Nicholas said. It sounds like a sort of magic. Well, thank you to Skylight Books for having us on this podcast. And thank you, Karen and Judy, for joining me in this. I really love hearing your work. And I just feel like all three of us uh, are writing about the West in some ways. And I, I wanted to bring us together to talk about place, about the West, about the unique landscape that I feel like we're all tackling in very different ways and yet it's so bound up in place. So I just thought I'd start off by asking uh, whoever wants to go first, you know, how does, how do you see place shaping or inspiring your work? Um, um, out of a, a sense of um, um, uh, despair and defense sometimes that I write. So I, I feel um, when I read uh, history and literature, which I love to read, then I feel this sense of, um, of upset that, that perhaps this, this person's um, take on life or this person's experience may be forgotten forever. So I think that, that that's the defensiveness that comes in being defensive and wanting to, to, uh, to make sure um, this person, um, this person's little, little, little experience gets told. So that's, that's part of it yeah, for me. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, for me, I mean, um, you know, I write poems all, always. Ju Judy, you have the gift of being able to write plays and to write stories and write novels. Um, I really don't get away from the poems. And for me, the poems are always about 
what's observed and how it is said and what that, uh, what that um, elicits from the consciousness, from the sense of memory or history or uh, what, how it creates emotion. And I, uh, what, what's the phrase you just used, Ron, in your, um, from your reading? Um, the the voice of the woman who was the uh, the um, um, pictorialist uh, photographer, um, and she said uh, by roughly what she said was by manipulating the image you make a kind of a, a magic, and um, so I think it's that manipulation of what is right in front of me and what I you know pull out of memory and reading and culture and whatever is going on at the moment. Um, that's that's um, what how it happens, but it all begins with landscape. It really does. It, it's what's observed and how you start finding words and then what those words, what those words make. Um, I don't know. Judy, um, I was thinking about uh, a couple of passages from Virgin Soul, your book, and um, they're they're quite different uh, in how they use the. In this case, it's the the urban landscape. In one, Janice uh, is the main character is in a shopping mall with friends trying to get a bridesmaid's dress, and she becomes completely angry, frustrated and angry. And, and her she starts remembering a lot of things that make her angry. And then in another image, um, she's in a train that goes under Twin Peaks. And there's a sort of uh, almost a pan, uh, it's, it, it becomes something amorphous. It becomes, you know, it's that reality that is always about something other than itself. And so, so I wonder um, how you negotiate these two really different, equally important responses to the, the urban landscape. And 25 words or less. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the bridesmaid scene was set in San Leandro. So I, I think this, this whole thing of um, despair probably played in that um, as young people uh, growing up in Oakland, um, we, San Leandro was off limits. It was segregated. So, so I think bringing up the memory of, of my dad driving us through San Leandro on the way to Hayward to the shopping mall um, uh, uh, made, uh, um, such an impression on me because we'd be in the back seat and my dad would say get down get down because when we drove through San Leandro and San Lorenzo then people would throw um rocks and um and rotten fruit at the car because there were lots of trees where there was low-hanging fruit and um of course they call us nigger um so so trying to um illustrate um uh this difference uh in the terrain that it's the same 
the same geography, but something very, very different is happening on it. And that's what I was yeah. trying to capture, but it's the same. And I, I actually feel the same way now um, driving through or being a part of the Bay Area after having lived in New Jersey for 18 years. Um, I, I'm always amazed, wow, this is the same place. It's yeah. just different. But the stop signs some, somehow, every once in a while, the same lights will be there or the same um, place for lights, but they'll of course be modernized. So um, something fundamental, I think, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, well, you, you can't talk about landscape without talking about time, can you, Ron? <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's what, what fascinates me so much by place is just all of the layers of history of wildly different experiences. I mean, part of what captivated, captivated me about writing this novel set around the earthquake was just reading about the experience of the people of San Francisco going through utter devastation, you know, spending days in this landscape of broken buildings, ash, uh, smoke, uh, fleeing the fire, moving from place to place. Uh, and then some of them, many of them um, were able to escape across the Bay to Oakland, to Berkeley, uh, where people, lots of people opened up their houses um, or backyards or attics or basements. And, and then you had this experience of, of being in Berkeley, which in many ways was even more bucolic than it is now, uh, more rural. And uh, it was this beautiful natural landscape. And there you are in this, in these winding hills uh, or uh, looking across the bay at the city where you, everything you knew has been scorched and is still smoking. And, and I think of that continual interplay of nature, beautiful nature of memory of your, your life. Uh, uh, and then the wildfires that we're experiencing today in California, the underlying fragility, um, and the history of trauma that we navigate through uh, every day in, in times of, of calm and in times of strife and uh, turmoil. So uh, it's all there, it's all laid on top of each other like a, like double, double exposure. Right, right. Yeah, I, I reading uh, your book, I was, uh, you know, I lived in Berkeley for, for oh, quite a while, 10 years something like that. And walking around the city always. And I kept thinking when I read your book, um, why didn't I have these stories in my head? I mean, why didn't I know? Why, why didn't I know these things about the people who lived in these houses? Because, you know, Berkeley is so full of charming houses and the hillsides are so charming. And, and you know, if you come there and aren't, uh, you know, are new to the area. You don't, you don't know what's inside those houses, and so that that was uh, something that preoccupied me for a long time. So that was a pleasure. But um, yeah, I, uh, that's that's what I was trying to do in that, um, particularly in that um, that long poem that I, I that I read second which was um, about the, had in mind, referenced the Coronado expedition of the 16th century, which went across the Southwest. And I'd been reading the, the journals 
uh, or a journal about the that expedition, a contemporary journal. And uh, um, one of the um, one of the comments that was made in the introduction to the journal, which really snagged my attention, was that the the route that the expedition took from Mexico all across the Southwest and up into Kansas and probably was roughly parallel to the old Route 66. And so, you know, you're driving along the old route, you know, along that area and there's the Coronado School and the Coronado Motel and the Coronado Housing Development. And, and there's that, that rough place, you know, that you're talking about, Judy, between between memory and the present that just, how do you resolve that? How do you understand that? What sense do you make out of it? So uh, what, I, what I deal with, since I don't have characters, I just feel, I just allow different voices to come into the poem. It's oh, not, okay. they're never univocal. It's the, the poems aren't univocal, so. Yeah. Yeah, the meeting. The meeting, yes. Sometimes um, um, I think space, you know, in our, even in our uh, uh, chapters or how we handle space um, um, is maybe that's a go-to for writers. You know, let's put some, some space in here, some white space, you know? I love me some white space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's in the it's in the gaps that so you leave things for the reader to fill in what happened um, or to guess to put together the pieces. You can you can travel weeks, centuries in the white space, and then then the reader becomes part of it too. Because you know, even as we're we're trying to excavate our memories uh, or and our and excavating histories that we come across that we read forgotten journals and uh, lesser known uh, accounts of the past. And we try to weave it all together, but we're left with so many gaps, which I think is partly what art comes out of is trying to, to answer the gaps. Well, you know, okay, I've, I know what happened here according to this person, but what am I missing? What, what isn't written down? What never got recorded? What must it have been like? Um, and then what, what do I have that I can contribute to sort of fill in the gaps that future Future, current and future readers might need uh, to to fill in their sense of this of this landscape and its history and everything we miss. So, how did you select, Ron? How how do you select what to put in and what to leave behind? You know, because those of us we we who love history, you know, of course we come to it and we embrace ninety five percent of it, but a small percentage makes it, it makes it in. So how do how do you two, and particularly Ron, how, how did you select what what went in this in your novel? Well, I think that's the somewhat the advantage of of novel is that uh, if ultimately you, you kind of have to tell a story because <laughs> I wrote I put in there were so many fascinating characters from history uh, uh, who made cameos in the early drafts of this novel. Uh, the architect Bernard Maybeck, uh, who there is a Maybeck house that plays a role in this story, but I, ultimately he does not show up on the page, but there were scenes okay. with Maybeck, there were scenes with Charles Keeler, um, a poet and naturalist uh, who lived in Berkeley and had a 
big influence on articulating sort of the philosophy of, of uh, weaving houses into the nature, into the topography of the hills rather than building against it. Um, there were the women pictorialists of the time, uh, Laura Adams Armour and um, Adelaide Hanscom Leeson, uh, both Berkeley photographers who did amazing, fascinating dreamlike work, uh, and Annie Brigman, Oakland photographer, uh, pictorialist as well, uh, all of whom have, there are traces of them in the novel, but they, the, the characters uh, themselves, they don't appear as characters, uh, but I, I would have loved to have them in. I tried to put them in, uh, maybe some short stories they will, but ultimately it was just like, okay, but when I had written all of these scenes, I had to say, okay, what, what, what do I really need to tell the story of Joseph and Arthur in Karelia? And, uh, and so I have this whole folder of characters who I love, uh, scenes I love, and that I, they just had to go. I don't know, Karen, how do you, in poetry, how do you navigate that? Oh, well, I, I was gonna say, uh, uh, you have, uh, you, you look at uh, plot as, uh, as, as an advantage. I look at it as a severe uh, disability <laughs> drawback. I just, I, I'm just so happy not to use it. What I like, and one of the things I, I notice in fiction, and I like it speaking of white space, is that very, very often what a, what a writer will do, and I'm not saying that either of you do it, but what, what a writer will do is uh, resort to white space when, when what there is to be worked out is going to be worked out in such a, in terms of plot, such a mechanical or pedestrian or so or for concluded way that let's just, let's just not bother with that. You know, we'll just, you know, days later, <laughs> it's, it's all right to go ahead. But uh, for me, uh, for me, that kind of space, it is, uh, it's kind of like, you talked about it, Ron, like a kind of breathing room, a kind of uh, um, letting the, and I, I, I think of giving the poem a breathing room, breathing space, but really it's about letting the reader have a moment to um, consider what's being read. And that's especially useful in a poem when the images are so compressed and the language is so compressed and, and you know something's going on. Um, but um, you, you, you're, you're only inside what's going on to the degree that you find it relevant, you know, to your own experience. So it's, it's I don't know, you, I, I read something you said somewhere wrong, uh, that you really wanted to uh, be less, reality based in your work that was this other thing that you wanted to bring into your work this uh, otherness that sort of hovers over reality yeah well I, I think um i wanted this to be to seem like a realistic novel without being a realistic novel uh, so i did you know tons of research and tried to be very faithful to what was actually happening at the time um, and there's there isn't anything supernatural uh, specifically, but um, but I never list. I don't know if if the tetrascope, the device at the heart of this story, the, the four-sided mm -hmm. camera, could actually work uh, in terms of physics the way I've presented it, uh, and that it doesn't matter to me. It's, it's no. a, 
and and uh, I feel like that thing you're talking about where the plot sometimes becomes mechanical is is one of the dangers of fiction uh, is when the plot takes over and moves the characters about. So I, um, so I always like to have some aspect of mystery uh, where uh, and dream dreamlike aspects to to even a realistic story that I feel like that's so such a key part of a fiction. Oh. <laughs> I think of that, uh, that quote from Grace Paley's story, uh, A Conversation with My Father, everyone real or invented deserves the open destiny of life. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that, I just love fiction and, and, and poetry that where you feel like the, the, pe the people are not there to, to show something. Um, they're not there to get to a certain plot point, but they're, they're living their a life that could go any way at any point um, based on who they are. And that's that's what I try to do. And I feel like, Judy, your your novel, Virgin Soul, does that beautifully. I feel like your characters have the open destiny um, of life. Thank you. You know, can we talk just for a minute about editing and other people's editing of our work? You know, when we get to the point where someone else, uh, I'm talking about once we've, submitted or have a final um, you know uh, manuscript and then an editor comes in and says something uh, that that addresses these issues we've been talking about. So I'm referring to when mm, my um, agent slash editor Bonnie said to me, Judy, everything that the Panthers did is not you know interesting, you know. Um, she was trying to get me to cut, you know, well over a hundred pages. <laughs> uh, so, um, of course I had to mull that over and think it over for a bit, but it's been a guideline for me because I love the research and am far more taken by reading, um, history than fiction, um, and unfortunately or fortunately it shows in my writing. Um, so have you, have you had a point where an editor, as we say, pulled your coattail and said, uh-uh. And that editor can be, you know, a reader, you know, a beta reader or what have you, but have you had a point where somebody just said something that was a wake up call for you? I'd wow. say I'm my own worst editor. <laughs> Ron? Yeah, well, you, you kind of have to be, but then you also need other people sometimes. Um, and uh, for, for me, um, my first reader is my spouse, Sarah Stone, who's read many, 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 many drafts of this book. Um, and I also showed it to uh, my writer's group, um, Whole bunch of novelists who had really smart things to say. Um, so, uh, so yeah. It, it, I mean, this, I didn't have the experience of handing it to an editor who was uh, in in terms of what you had, Judy. Um, I had an agent for a while who would read it and um, say, "Well, you know, uh, it's better than it was, but it's not it, it's not yet good enough." Um, and so it's that kind of, she wouldn't give me very specific responses. So it just kind of pushed me to, you know, as, as Karen said, be my own editor. I had to say, okay, well, how do I make it better? How do I make it do more of what it's doing? Um, 
but really it was the writers group and Sarah's input uh, in sort of deepening the characters uh, to uh, the character of Arthur, the father in this novel. Um, for a long time, I had something, um, there was just a way in which I wasn't fully portraying his human side. Um, and Sarah, you know, got in various drafts in gentle ways, I would say, um, you know, could you put more of, of his human side on the page? And in, in the final draft, I feel like I finally, I finally was able to connect to portray with the, lo the loving side of him that I knew was there and hadn't been able to get on the page. Uh, Ron, something you said, I, I told you before, it stayed with me um, even to this moment. And uh, you said, um, upon reading a sizable portion of the manuscript, you said, basically, I'm tired of these pat transitions at the end of chapters, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's made me real conscious. Oh, how am I going to end this chapter? Where should I end it? How am I going to start the next one? And white I just space, darling, face. white space. Right, <laughs> space. I think I was much blunter in those days as a reader. <laughs> I needed it. <laughs> but I'm glad it was helpful. It was. Humbler. This moment. <laughs> humbler now. Much humbler, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. You know, I guess uh, the things that people do, they don't, uh, they don't seem to me so, so much to advance plot or they don't seem much the levers of the plot is that what I understand of the depth of what they want, what the characters want, you know? And it's, it's this kind of wanting or yearning that always seems to me that is really what is essentially about being human. And uh, so I just, discard human activity in my poems and, and, and just make them all about unfettered, unfettered yearning, unfettered desire. And in, in the case of my book, it was always improbably about, uh, you know, them trying to find Kivira, this golden city, which didn't exist, but they tried it for centuries. And it, of course it didn't exist and they couldn't find it, so. So it's it's always about whatever you want, not really being there. Yeah, yeah. How you, I mean, how you make do. I think whether it's a, a poem or a novel, ultimately it's not it's not ultimately about the language, it's not ultimately about plot, but about uncovering the layers of of wanting, uh, the layers of you know, you think you're searching for something, but actually all along you've been searching for something else uh, or something else beneath that or something else beneath that. Um, and yeah. that sort of the poem or the novel as it advances, you right. start to uncover that. Right, right. Uh, good, good. Uh. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. It uh, was such a lovely discussion. I was really so appreciative to hear from you guys and hear from you, especially as people have been writing and creating together for so many years. And the West Coast perspective is always so important to us here at Skylight. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for everyone for tuning in. This has been Skylit. Uh, do you guys have any last closing words that you'd like to share? 
just thank you so much, uh, Emily, and thank you so much to Skylight Books and the whole crew for keeping literature out there in the pandemic times and for, for sharing the voices of so many writers. Yeah, thank you again so much for joining us. Um, today you guys heard the lovely Karen Kevorkian, Judy Juanita, and Ron Nyren. Um, you can find all of their books at Skylight. Uh, and if you don't want to come into the store, which we are open right now, you can find us at skylightbooks.com. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.